got is this recording yeah okay well we'll fuck it we'll, we'll record this i uh maybe we could start the show this way i have started to develop and i think you people might have gotten this from the last episode that we did which apparently was very well regarded so thank you everybody for that um and i know like a, a self-critique i think of um activism and okay and actionism this constant uh need we've had for the last, I don't know, 40, 50 years to constantly be doing something and doing something, um, whether that's successful or not, or whether it actually helps us to attain our goals or not. And I feel like unrest is good. <laughs> we know that. I'm not sure it's like a priori in and of itself the best. So I, I don't know. Maybe we could have a broader discussion on it, but that's kind of where I'm at right now. Oh my God. Is this like an anti-sloganeering position <laughs> or is this like we need to tinker with it and come up with a better one i i certainly think we could tinker with it and come up with a better one i think that you know as our as our politics continues to evolve and develop we maybe will replace our slogan unrest is best with perhaps something more adequate to the time like what i don't know what do you got um uh hello self-organization is great to the antifada where a combo of autonomous worker organizing <laughs> um base building political education and you know maybe some electoral campaigns jury still out is the best <laughs> way to get communism the show <laughs> i'm jamie peck <laughs> Yeah, maybe something like that. I don't know. Uh, I don't keep know. working on it. We, gotta, we might have to workshop that a bit for uh, concision. But uh, yeah, I guess I guess the show started now, whether we like it or not. <laughs> no. Well, you know, we always got to evolve. And, you know, I, I you're right. These critiques are well taken. Um, well, we used to have a really descriptive little poem at the beginning. Oh, my God. Do you remember that? that? But, yeah. um, some people thought it was dumb. That, so the, the poem was before... Even the concept of cringe became a thing, but I think they like oh, prefigured cringe. <laughs> they might have called it something else, but yeah, no, cringe existed, but calling cringe cringe hadn't quite existed. But you know what? We were trying to get this fucking show off the ground. You know, we were trying to throw it together. You know, that was I think it was important for. Oh, you know what it was actually? Now that I recall, it was because we have such a trolley name for our podcast oh, yeah. that we were trying to like get around. Oh yeah. Antifa. A lot of people didn't know what it, what it <laughs> meant, what it meant. Like the first time, the first, very first guest we had on Tatiana, remember she was yeah. like making sure we weren't like a pro Israel <laughs> pro cop podcast or something a, like that. A Zionist cop podcast. <laughs> yeah. I, I can't imagine why we would want to come up with a little spiel at the beginning that told people we weren't <laughs> cops and Zionists. But like people still ask me, sometimes what the name means yeah we i think we've established what we are yeah. or at least like the broad outlines of it i hope i would hope so by yeah. now oh Shut up. Hi, cat. god uh, damn it yeah this no uh, uh hi, of my existence hi and welcome to the antifada where uh the thing that long thing that jamie said is best <laughs> um we're gonna have a pretty uh casual show i think uh if, if you can't tell already we're kind of just uh flying by the seat of our pants here today yeah, well, it can't be Angry Workers Week every week. Right. It can't be Black Marxism Week every week, all right? We're only three people. Two yeah. today, actually. Two today. Andy's taking a well-needed break. Um, we're going to be doing an excellent episode next week with the brand-new Marxological podcast called Real Abstractions. Oh, we are? 
Yeah, we're going to do a uh, an analysis of a very under-analyzed text of Karl Marx's called Theory, Value, and Surplus, I believe it's called. I've never read it before. It's, it's going to be fascinating. I thought we were doing Aaron Bananov next week. I think we were maybe going to do both. What? Yeah. Okay, this, fine. This podcast train is going uh, on all cylinders No one now. tells me anything. It's <laughs> fine. Um, how are you doing today? Let's do a little check-in. Sure. What are you bringing to the space? <laughs> um, check-in today. I uh, I don't know, man. I think there's going to be time to talk about the uh, <laughs> return of COVID in a big way, maybe later on in the podcast. Yeah. I'm not going to try to dwell too much on that now but it's a it's a pretty tough time out there i've got actually some bad news for our listeners um those of them who are not on twitter might not know that um about a week and a half ago our uh sometimes co-host of the line goes down series uh dick or dickophrenic millions of dead landlords he goes by many names was picked up by a multi-agency raid of uh, the feds, basically. So now a week and a half later, he's not been given bail, so he still sits incarcerated. Um, All of us here on the podcast and a lot of other great people down in Atlanta and elsewhere are trying to work right now on the political support for him. Um, But as of right now, I can't give too, too many details on the legal stuff because his legal team is still trying to figure out how to confront the political aspects of this trial. It's not just Dick. It's three black militants also down from Atlanta. Uh, and these charges, alleged things that happen, stem from um, the whole this whole cycle of insurgency that we've seen you know, since the murder of George Floyd all those months ago. And it's hard to figure out whether the state is trying to make an example of them as communists, Uh, or whether this is uh, going to be a a sort of ongoing mop-up operation by the state to try to, uh, you know, any any militants that they can possibly find to pin something on, try to uh, sweep them up and charge them and indict them on these things. But it's obviously, we here on the podcast are devastated. Uh, I spoke with Dick on the phone yesterday. And uh, to the extent that you could be holding up in a uh, federal detention center, He's doing damn good. Um, he's got the support of us, his friends, and his partner, and also the Atlanta Solidarity Fund, which is a really, really important group that came out of the George Floyd uprising and all the insurrection in Atlanta. Uh, they are doing the they're they're gathering the funds together for the legal and uh, and the, the communication together for the political support. So it's really tough right now because there's not that much we can do. But I just wanted at the top of the show to tell people about this Solidarity Fund. They can be found at atlsolidarity.org. And it's super important that they get funds because we were hoping that he'd be out on bail this last week. But it looks like this is going to be a very long process. And the Solidarity Fund is not only for the legal fees, but it's also for very important things like the transportation money for uh, friends and relatives and loved ones to go visit the incarcerated. And it's also for commissary, because if they're going to be inside for a long time awaiting trial or waiting to plea down into something, uh, it's important that we try to you know, have their backs as much, much as possible. So obviously we'll put the link in the show description for Atlanta Solidarity Fund, but 
anything you could give and certainly recurring donations, even if they're small, would be excellent because, as I said, unfortunately, uh, this is going to be going on for a bit. So thoughts are with uh, Dick and the other prisoners and solidarity with them. And all I would say to wrap it up is that I, when I spoke with Dick on the phone yesterday when he called me from prison, we were joking about trying to do finally... The uh, line goes to political line goes down to political economy of China from lockup. He said that uh, maybe he can call in and we could try to do uh, some line goes down. Uh, this is a fuck you That'd to the state. That'd be so good. <laughs> but, like uh, I need to know what happens with China. I'm gonna get to my goddamn seat here. From 1948 till 1991, we have to know. I mean, we we're so fucking close to getting it. The, the day after he got locked up, or the day after I found out he got locked up, we were supposed to have a Zoom conversation to finally wrap that up, and it would have been recorded last weekend. People need to know about the class conflicts and contradictions within Maoist uh, China during that time. It's, it's, it's a tragedy. It's not the biggest tragedy of all this, but uh, it's a tragedy. I was finally going to form an opinion on the China question. <laughs> Maybe a lot of people were going to do that. Um, yeah, it's rough. We're all feeling like shit. But I, as as time goes on with the podcast, where obviously we there's like that Senate race happening right now in Georgia, like the double double runoff thing, and a lot of people around Dick and the others are um, afraid that all this this spectacle of like democratic electoral politics is going to you know make people forget about the political prisoners who are down there but it's kind of our job to make sure that we don't forget oh but if john ossoff wins he's going to let them all out yeah sure right, right. <laughs> yeah he's running on a platform of you know decarceration uh just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I can't even finish that ridiculous scenario in my head. No, I know. Uh, like, like actual bourgeois politicians obviously aren't going to do much of anything for the incarcerated, but um, we can. You know, we can certainly do that. And one thing, lastly, that I'm thinking of doing soon is setting up um, online or maybe through the Patreon, like um, a kind of wish list for Dick to get. Uh, books delivered to him in lockup because that's one thing you could do is you can send him books and he's ravenous for things to read right now so as soon as we kind of have all these logistics together we'll be letting everybody know yeah solidarity to dick and to everyone who's being held in this scenario right now it is not good i don't want to say too much because i'm not sure what else i'm allowed to say right now but um we are all very concerned but we're not giving up no we don't give up so um yeah speaking of things that make us depressed <laughs> now this is really turning into uh, quite the episode uh, here no no i'm going somewhere good with it okay, okay i good. think get us I out think. of this out of this trough yeah. here <laughs> so yeah i'm gonna be honest i've been feeling a little bit blackpilled lately oh you too yeah uh, a little depressed um, you know, I, I talk a good game. I put a good game face on for the majority report. You know, I don't want to uh, I, I, I just feel like I have to be the tireless cheerleader of communism when I'm talking <laughs> to a general audience. But he's the head that wears the crown. Right? Yeah. But we're, we're among friends right now. So I can admit it. I've Please. been a, a little depressed. Um, this election that we just had uh, was operating 
so many layers removed from the real issues in society, from the material base, from the social relations that make everything go. Um, People in a lot of states are voting mostly on cultural issues or on, you know, their just best guesstimates of which party is going to make their lives better. Spoiler alert, it's neither. Uh, And that's been kind of depressing. I've been feeling kind of beat up um by by libs i've been cyber bullied you are in the center of the lib storm i mean i I, when i think about this i mean so many of us or at least me anyways because i'm unemployed right now are so like outside of the media political spectacle but you like live inside that four days a week i'm like really at the center of a lot of contradictions (laughs) i gotta say i live at the conjuncture (laughs) of conjuncture and conjuncture it's a lot it's a lot the um, triple conjuncture we call and it. like even maybe it's maybe it's because i'm in lib world maybe it's just because i'm in this world and this year of this world this world we must leave uh, yeah but like you know i was talking about it the other day capitalist realism affects all of us and depoliticization affects all of us That's right so like i can believe in communism i can believe that that is the most rational way to organize the world and i can believe and understand that the only way to get that is like global proletarian revolution but still i the things i sound the things i say sound crazy to myself when they're coming out of my mouth sometimes because we are so thoroughly inculcated with the idea that it's just not possible you know i mean Maybe like I I do believe it's possible to organize the world that way. I think it's the best, most sensible way to do it. But to get from here to there seems so fucking difficult. Daunting. Yeah. It's so hard. It's so hard. And I'm like, you know what? Maybe you guys are right. Maybe you guys are right to not believe me. Maybe that's fucking crazy. Maybe the best thing we can hope for is this kind of tepid incrementalism year to year. Maybe grow the squad by a tiny bit. (laughs) Maybe right. get like a public option or something. Maybe that's the best thing that we can hope for. Yeah. And I was feeling like a little bit like I want to give up. But when that happens, sometimes what I need to do, I think, is log off yeah. and get out into the real world and do something. Yeah. And especially uh, since the quarantine and since the protests really peaked and then um, petered out, although there is stuff happening still all the time. Yeah. Um, I really haven't been doing that much. I've been a little depressed. I've been staying in my house a lot, you know, talking to the cats, talking on Twitter. So I was like, you know what? I got a free day on Saturday. What if I find something to do? Mm. So I was like, what's going on? I look in my inbox because, you know, I'm on all the DSA mailing lists and I just let stuff pile up. And then once in a while, I'm like, oh, yeah, I've got a free weekend. Let me do something. And I saw that they were having um, tabling and canvassing in the park for the defund nypd campaign for the park up the street Mm -hmm. cool maria hernandez um complicated history of that person (laughs) we won't even get into here another day but um so yeah i went with some of my comrades north brooklyn dsa folks are doing some tabling and canvassing in the park for the defund nypd campaign and they're doing it in a smart way where we tie the issue to DSA and stuff that's happening in DSA, including our city council races in 2021, because all of our endorsed candidates are going to be working very hard on decreasing the police budget by precisely half Mm. in this city 
and redistributing those funds to housing, healthcare, education, things that actually keep people safe, right? So I went with them and I walked around and I talked to a bunch of people about it, gave out some information about uh, the defund campaign, about what DSA is doing, collected a bunch of emails for our email list for people who want to get involved and talk to people about defunding the police and about abolition in general. How'd it go? Um, now, I know that New York is not necessarily a representative true, slice of America. True, true. And I know that Bushwick is perhaps not a representative slice of New York. No. Right? No. It's, it's better. It's probably <laughs> better than the rest of New York. In but, terms of defund, it is, sure. Uh, and it, in it, many it ways. It doesn't beat the Upper East Side, though, for uh, good times and good people. Oh, my God. <laughs> Jesus Christ. But I, not a single person that I talked to, and I talked to probably 100 people mm. in the park, uh, not a single person said that they were against defunding the NYPD. There That's were people, there were a few people who were like, I don't want to talk right now, but nobody tried to argue with me. The most common answer when I said, hey, are you interested in defunding the NYPD was, of course. Wow. One guy actually thought that it didn't go far enough. And we had a nice little conversation about that. And I was like, yes, I agree with you. But, you know, it's a step we can take towards abolition. And this was like a um, representative cross section of people in the neighborhood. Who aren't I would say all so. like white hipsters. There's also people of other ethnicities and backgrounds. Oh, yeah. People of all ethnicities and backgrounds. I would say there's a lot of black people. There's a lot of uh, Latino people in Bushwick. And the white people tend to be like millennial hipster lefty types. So a very fertile ground, all said, yeah. for defunding the NYPD. And guess what? Not just white hipsters want to do it. As surprise, it surprise. Out, uh, working class people of color in this neighborhood also hate the cops. Wow. Who, who, I can't imagine why. Yeah. So, you know, I know there have been a lot of uh, discussions about how, you know, oh, we polled people and they said they want the cops in their neighborhoods, blah, blah, blah. But I think uh, some of those things are a little misleading because... I think a lot of the time what people are really saying is they want safety. Right. And that is the only way they know how to get safety. Also, uh, people want a lot of other things, too, that aren't being put in their neighborhoods. Right. Like, um, it, it might be true that, like, for example, uh, black community leaders in the 1970s were like, we need cops to deal with this crime problem. Some of them. Also, you know, we can get into, like, what community actually means and how community leaders aren't always really looking out for the interests right. of the rank and file <laughs> members of the community, right. shall we say. But they weren't just asking for police. They were asking for social services. Right. They were asking for education. They were asking for health care. And the only thing they got was police. Yeah, and they were asking for for that in a period of the 1970s and 80s and early 90s when there was a concerted effort on a municipal, state, and federal level to do, uh, what do they call it, spatial disintegration. I forget what the actual term for it was, but saying, like, these communities, you know, capital and people are leaving them, so we're going to start taking funding away from these communities to match, you know, the, the, f the fleeing of capital. And so it was like... This was happening at, at a time when services were being lost, and so it's it's a very it's a very different question today when we actually see what's happened with mass incarceration and with police brutality, and a lot of these I don't know a, 
a lot of these arguments about what people wanted back when the crime bill was passed don't really pass muster today because it's a different era and different conditions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's probably being used very disingenuously, I think. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But um, anyway, yeah, it really, it made me feel a little more optimistic about the whole endeavor. It made me feel like this is a popular demand and we should not listen to the people who say, oh, well, it, it kept the Democrats from winning big in the election. Like, a, I don't really care. <laughs> I'm just going to be honest about that. But B, like, uh, I think it is pretty popular. And, you know, you just got to fucking get out there and talk to people. It also kind of um, links into another thing that we want to talk about today. What's that? What do you Well, got? Well, first of all, I'll say it made me feel a little less depressed. That's well, the no, point that's, of telling that story. That's great. And I think if I could say before we move on, I think so much of our problem right now is, as I said last time, that we are the adults in the room (laughs) and that ultimately our solutions are really the only ways to get past these contradictions. I mean, communists, right? But it's it's this vast gap between our theory, which is, I think, 100% correct. I think the class struggle and the contradictions of class society are objective conditions. We're not just, like, making this shit up. It tracks with reality, and it is the way to look at conflict within class society. But you have that on the one hand and then this vast gulf between like what is what seems to be possible at this moment and the means to actually achieve that. So, of course, when we're sitting on Twitter or we're sitting at home or we're just like, you know, dwelling on how shitty everything is, you know, things seem impossible. But, yeah, when you the goal with practical activity is always to go out and try to bridge that gap, Mm -hmm. you know, between the reality of the class struggle and the potential to come out of that and create a better world. And it's hard to do that at home. It's certainly hard to do that on Twitter or Facebook. And um, the good news is now that I have done praxis for the praxis. week, I've praxis. done I've done my praxis for yeah. the weekend. You did one praxis. I did one <laughs> praxis, so I get to make at least one shit post now. <laughs> and I'm going to be thinking very carefully of what I want that to be. I wish it worked that way, man. I wish people had to justify <laughs> their shit posts. It would be a much better world. I know. I know it. <laughs> I mean, I don't always follow my own rules on that, oh, but I no. feel like... Things would be a lot fucking better if all these people with all their fucking opinions, yeah. you know, it'd be like a labor voucher. All right. It's not yeah, transferable. Right, right, right. You do your praxis and then you get a, like you are able a to chit. log in for like one <laughs> post or however many sure, hours sure, you worked, sure. you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's that's really good. You get a little shit posting chit. <laughs> And, uh, yeah, I think this is something that we need to workshop even more. This is going to be a, really a workshopping episode. We're going to yeah. workshop the intro to the show. We're going to workshop shitposting chits. We're basically a think tank now. I think so, yeah. We're like the communist version of, you know, whatever the fuck Sean McElwee is doing <laughs> that he named after himself. We're the Institute for a Communist America. Oh, I like that. <laughs> I see. A. Well, yeah, we'll keep, we're workshopping, we're workshopping. But, yeah. like, also... Um, it kind of tied into a lot of conversations that have been happening, uh, I guess, online, but also like in the mainstream press about oh, no. just how how the organized left can even deign to talk to workers. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. This fucking. Ugh. Are you talking about that tweet where that. Harvard Law woman was like, uh, I bet you. Is she Harvard that- Law? <laughs> yeah, you didn't, didn't get that. that. Of course she was. <laughs> She's Harvard she Law. She wasn't tweeting from the shanty. <laughs> she was not on my job site. Uh, un- 
uh, I'm going to try to find it right now, upset about um, the vast disconnect between communist theory and uh, <laughs> working class life in this country. I got to say, I, I talked to so many people the other day and, you know, not all of them shared the same background as me. Yeah. And not a single one of them uh, said any slurs. It was, uh, <laughs> it was crazy. Like yeah. we spoke the same language. Not to uh, not not to uh, typecast you, but why don't you with your voice read this tweet? OK. <laughs> All right. Do it in your best. Do it your best, uh, Valley Girl. Okay. Okay. Um, I'm I'm a Harvard worker, and I'm having a sad (laughs) thought. All right. Um, at this this is um, hash er, not hashtag user at dumb and awful. Yep. So at least she knows. Yep. Sad thought. Colon. Most leftists on this site. And I genuinely believe this could not make it through a one hour conversation with a working class person. I DK what that means, but it probably isn't good. (laughs) She continues. Oh, go on. Shall I continue? No. Yes, please. We need to get this. Uh, Sorry. I should have clarified here. I met working class as a fill in for literally anyone you are trying to radicalize because you're all dorks. (laughs) I mean. I'll take my phone back now with that horrible thing you just did with it in your hand. <laughs> this thing is soiled now. But uh, yeah, no, that that really happened. It got almost 12,000 likes. But it also, some of the responses I saw talking shit about it had like 20,000 likes. So that means it's a, it, it ratioed out pretty all right. All right. But uh, what do you think about that as a worker? As a worker. As a worker. As a worker. I, I, I think, uh, as I said on Twitter, that the solution to this is when you're, whenever you're having a conversation with a, with, a, with a working class person, you always start every sentence with, as a worker. So if you say, like, as a worker, I think, or like, as a worker, could you pass the ketchup? Or like, as a worker, yo, get the fuck out of that lane, or, or whatever. <laughs> it's, I think it's very helpful to establish that you yourself you know, are in solidarity with this externalized, discrete object known as the working class that one that is completely separate from the left which is a bunch of dorks now the dorks thing i mean i think it's true i mean i will cop to being a fucking dork (laughs) but uh, you know the the dork dork is not a class background dorks have like uh you know it's not really a material category it's like like community right there's like the dork community but it's like an inter 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 class sort of situation so i don't know what do you think about it there As a worker. S- oh, my God. Am I even allowed to call myself that? Because I work in um, media. Uh, I, I thought that I was, like, in a different category because of that. No, all your your material conditions changed because, um, I don't know why, you have, like, clout or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah clout, really, clout paying, really paying the rent in, in clout. <laughs> for food and whatnot. <laughs> um, okay, so, yes, as you said, it is... Um, kind of disturbing to see somebody talk about um the organized left like it is this category completely divorced from the working class and not made up primarily of people of the working class because as almost every group in society is because most people are working class people look we're marxists okay (laughs) if you have to work for a wage you don't have power to hire or fire anyone and you don't own private property such as a house such as uh substantial investments in the yeah. uh, stock portfolio you are of the working class and even if you own a house the, it's where the categories blur because 
Marx's critique of political economy has never been and, of course, will fail to do what these people wanted to do, which is to try to take individuals and put them in these little discrete boxes of working class versus capitalist class. I mean, uh, obviously, there's more classes than just those two classes, right? Those are just the two revolutionary classes, the bourgeoisie, which won their revolution, and the proletariat, which hopes to win in the future. There's intermediate classes in between that, of course. But uh, also, too, the, the point of class analysis is to understand the social relations between people and ultimately understand how those are in contradictions, how conflicts arise, how that builds an entire world of a, of a class society and how ultimately we need to destroy that world. It's not about saying, well, this trucker over here, he owns his own truck, right? And so, wait, is he a worker or isn't he? Because he wears a blue collar, but then again, he's also an owner-operator. Oh, wait, this guy doesn't own his truck, but he owns his house, and that's like a form of capital, right? Or like, he's got outside investments in his pension fund. Does that make him actually a worker? You drive yourself fucking nuts this way. You'll drive yourself crazy. Think of them as like, think of it as an ideal type even. It's And it's not even like i said a discrete thing it's a relationship like the working class is a relationship so the whole thing drives me fucking nuts and what it shows me is that these people who get on their high horse about like you're not working class or working class people don't do that working class people do this blah 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 and it's usually harvard fucks and it's harvard fucks i'm saying they have a shitty class analysis and if they if they were if they had a better one they wouldn't be saying this stuff because it's incoherent yeah uh word i mean i have i have a lot of thoughts on this please Um, give us like there's this idea that these folks have that's usually a ventriloquized working class person that exists in their head right um but that's not to say that there are no reactionary attitudes among the working class oh there's certainly right um and i think it's important to be able to pick out you know when something is just someone making a joke or maybe a body joke or whatever and when they're actually being uh reactionary or bigoted and i think in the case of the second um it is the responsibility of the vanguard to push the rest of the class to be more progressive in its attitudes because as discussed extensively in the past on this show um, it's not good for class solidarity right. for some parts of it to be racist against the other parts, yeah, right? No. Um, also, but, but the flip side of that, though, it also pertains that what we're ultimately interested in is not changing hearts and minds about racism, right? It's not like going into the unions. We're starting a revolutionary union now, so we throw you out if you've ever used the N-word. No, it's about like recognizing where people are at but also realizing that like people need to change if they're going to stand in solidarity with one another it's not really complicated right it's like you organize people despite of any sort of i don't even want to say deficiencies but like errors they might be making and it's not it's not a game it's not a judgment game yeah and and it is like i think it is an example of depoliticization too when a lot of uh i'm gonna say a lot of sort of electoralist social democrats when faced with something that maybe they actually don't believe in, like abolition, yeah. or maybe even something they do believe in, um, like potentially. Medicare for all. Uh, yeah, well, they never really do that with Medicare for all, but <laughs> when they say, oh, here's a poll, public opinion doesn't favor this thing, yeah. therefore we can't talk about it, we can't run on it, or whatever, when the idea is not to tail 
the attitudes of the pe- people who have been propagandized and inculcated with bourgeois ideology. And plus people who their are whole entire lives. Plus you know? people who are poll tested too. Like if you look at where individual people like under the rubric of polls themselves land politically, most people are all over the fucking map. You know, they'll believe something inherently reactionary about like marriage or gay people, but they'll be like really into like the idea of like abolishing work, (laughs) you know, or like vice versa, right? Like it's not like left and right are these categories that we place upon people and and upon the world. But most people like, even if they're not depoliticized, they just like have their own opinions on how things are. And it's our job to try to help them change their opinions yeah. <laughs> to, to good I ones. I mean, Medicare for All wasn't polling that well before Bernie Sanders right. talked about it for four years straight. And, you know, not just Bernie Sanders, but a whole entire movement. So, like, the idea, you know, like like, uh, like Mark says, the idea is not to poll the world, but to change it. <laughs> That's we gotta, We got to fucking change some shit around. And, like, we should figure out what politics are good <laughs> before we figure out how to sell those politics PR-wise. Yeah. I feel like a lot of people jump immediately to the second thing without thinking too much about the first, right? Like defunding the police is not just a slogan. It's something we actually have to do if we want to achieve socialist things because the police are protecting private property. That's what they're there to do. And they're there to enforce white supremacy as well. And we need to defeat those things if we ever want to get to socialism. So maybe we figure that out first before we send it to the PR department to figure out how to like, you know, get people to vote for Bernie Sanders or whatever. (laughs) I mean, that's fucking over now. Or John yeah right like if if there's one silver lining to the bernie sanders campaign being over it's um i no longer have to deal with people saying to me oh but how will this affect the bernie sanders campaign because guess what (laughs) that doesn't fucking exist anymore i don't care um things are so much easier and more clarifying when you don't have to constantly like worry about libs and public relation and what msnbc or whatever like these people are our enemies (laughs) they are like our class enemies they're the enemies of our class and as i've said on the show before for like four or five years you know you had to do this kind of uneasy dance well oh you know can we say this can we do that it doesn't fucking matter anymore and there's something ultimately freeing about it as i said the communist milieu are now the adults in the room they're the ones who look at things judiciously and we have to figure out the the best direct ways to confront them and it's going to be a process we can't do it you know immediately but uh you know it's on our five ten year horizon at this point yeah yeah um maybe 20 30 i don't know yeah i've been thinking so much about 40 50 okay (laughs) because like the way that people talk about class in this country is so, like I'm glad they're starting to talk about class again at all. Yeah. But it is still like incredibly divorced from what class actually means in the Marxist sense, i.e. the true sense. Of course. Right. Yeah. Like I was looking at and these are like professional journalists and pundits and stuff who look at class this way. I was looking at an article about, you know, the white working class and sure. how they are seem seem to be starting to abandon Trump. And the way that they define the working class here is um, people without a college degree who make under $50,000 a year. And it says right in the article that that includes a lot of small business owners. And I was just like... God damn it. God damn it. My head like I, I'm I'm about to cry and beg you. Beg <laughs> you. Like Libs understand class as a social relation challenge. Like it has so much more explanatory power that way. I got made fun of on the majority report when I said they should poll people based on the relationship to the means of production. That's a great idea. But like <laughs> 
look, if you don't think that this has explanatory <laughs> power, you can go back to doing it the dumb way. I promise <laughs> you will, though. I promise you're going to like it. You're going to like you're gonna it. Lo- well, you're going to no, love it. But, but progressives and liberals aren't going to love it because they are at heart anti-communists. You know, one of their main tasks is to make sure that people don't understand class <sighs> and then and live in their little bullshit world of communities and values and American pride and, you know, American leadership over the world community. I feel like some people, some people are like that, but other people just like don't the, don't get it yet. The people they just don't are, know. The people like are, I didn't know. Like I used to be a liberal. That doesn't mean I was bad. <laughs> yeah, but I just didn't know. But you like other people, you in the past or people today who are kind of on the fence about it, they've got two choices. They can either continue living in sin or they can just make the leap and become communists. Well, yes, that's that's what we're doing. <laughs> so the that's ones who are, who are persuadable, you know, we'll, we'll help them to become good communists. But, you know, I just want to like hashtag not all libs here because yeah, sure. a lot of people on the left used to be libs. And it doesn't mean that they were like terribly attached or committed to liberalism, right. small L liberalism or left liberalism or neoliberalism or whatever category you want to put them in. They just didn't know that they had a better option. Well, yeah. And this is, I think, ultimately why, in a broader sense, we talk about crisis all the time, right? Because there's this capitalist realism that you talked about and this depoliticization you mentioned, right? You know, there's you can do all the education in the world, political education you want. You can create all the powerful theories and theses. You can make podcasts and internet shows and you could go out and you can table at the park about defund or whatever. But like if people don't see that in their own lives, if that isn't part of their material reality, it's going to be very difficult to bring them along. But what this particular crisis, the triple crisis, has done, as we've seen in all the other financial and economic crises and social crises in the past, is that they lay bare the actual true relations of this society. When you have, how many fucking more trillions have the billionaires made during this fucking COVID crisis? While tens of millions of people are going, have been or are going to be evicted if nothing changes and trillions of more dollars goes to the ownership class, that's very fucking clear. It's very fucking clear what kind of society you have at that point. And that's, and that's really our hope. That's why we talk about crisis is because it forces, for not everybody, there's some real ideologues out there, it forces the scale to fall from people's eyes to an extent. Yeah, yeah things are falling down around us. And I think it's becoming clear to more and more people that this is not a crisis that can be resolved by uh, Democrats, by Republicans, by Democratic Socialists, but it's, it can't be resolved by certainly, you know, further neoliberal policies, deficit hawkery, whatever, whatever. Um, it remains to be seen whether it can be resolved through uh, Keynesian stimulus. Certainly, that's the best option in the short term. Sure. But um, I have doubts in the long term. Um, but that's like a conversation for another day. Yeah. We're getting a Paul Maddock, our friend of the show, to come on and uh, talk about how social democracy is historically impossible at this point because there's no fucking money. Yeah. Yeah. I'm I'm curious about that. Like I had a tweet thread where I was sort of looking for takes. Oh, God, I was looking for takes. God help me. Never look for takes. <laughs> you want to try to avoid the takes uh, if possible. Uh, yeah. No, the takes are basically the noid at this point. You want to <laughs> avoid them. Um, but like trying to find out like what even the theory is of democratic socialists yeah. by which they think that uh, 
left populist political party can resolve this crisis within the bounds of their own nation state sure. while the storm of global capitalism rages outside of its borders and how to do that without, um, you know, any kind of reactionary protectionist shit going on um, when it comes to the free movement of people, which, as we've gone over, is um, not as divorceable as you might initially think from the movement of capital around the world. Um, and I feel like the way that I framed that already made it sound like I really don't believe in it. Um, but I, I, I've spoken to some of my comrades about it in, uh, in DSA and Emerge Caucus, and the consensus seems to be democratic socialism. Um, yeah, no, the economics don't fucking work. It only works, quote unquote, insofar as it could be a stepping stone on the way to communism. So maybe you want to put a pin in that. Yeah, put a pin in it. That's yeah. I mean, just on the on the um, more narrow point of like why people think this is possible. Again, this is why on this show we always talk about the post-war period. Because so much of how people understand capitalism and America working comes from this image that most of them didn't even live through of American capitalism between 1945 and 1970, depending, one The long exception, as Jefferson Cowie called it. The long exception, that's right. The the interregnum between crises. And, And this, because it was this golden age of American and Western capitalism, it is seen as the norm and it's if we're not having that sort of broad prosperity and broad uh, levels of unionization and freedom then uh, people say well well what are we doing wrong we just got to get back to that and the policies that they had 40 50 years ago were clearly the right ones right what is changed nothing has changed let's just go back to the same sort of tariffs the same sort of protections the same sort of regulations you hashtag know. normal capitalism thank you hashtag normal capitalism and i think we've shown and i'm convinced that uh you can't go back baby you could never go home but what about mmt um people are always telling me to learn mmt and I haven't done it yet because I'm just a dumb bitch who's very skeptical of it and and or too dumb to understand it. I'll I'll admit something to you and to the podcast listeners. I try to like dip my toe into and understand the MMT shit, and it reads like fucking Greek to me. I don't I all of these moving parts and all of these theories and shit. I don't I can't do economics. Spoiler alert, I don't do economics. Yeah, it's called a critique of political economy. <laughs> exactly. Okay. Yeah, thank you. Not like Look, I'm, a cool version of political economy. All right, I might be an idiot, but I'm only an idiot economically okay it's the critique of political economy which is important because again we have to have paul maddock on for this economics in and of itself is fucking bullshit it's an attempt to try to basically propagandize into thinking that anybody knows what the fuck is going on ever yeah and by the way i just want you all to know i have started reading capital the big kid version Um, and like really right off the bat, I mean, I started with wage labor and capital, which is a pamphlet that goes over a lot of the core ideas in capital and it's more accessible than the big book. But, um, I'm finding it actually to be more readable than it was the last time I tried to read it, which means I have been learning something from podcasting. So thank you to everyone who's helped me learn things. And, um, like even right off the bat in capital, I'm I'm seeing just the utter uh like the the real contradictions 
inherent in this system, how hard it is for capitalists to get an advantage on any other capitalist yeah. and how most of what happens that people think is progress uh, immediately gets canceled out. So progress is canceled. Yeah. So so to be continued uh, on that front. No, no, that's great. I mean, I, I was on uh, Jake's podcast a few weeks ago with Aaron from uh, A Time of Monsters, friends of the show. And uh, we were talking about reading Capital. And one of the things I said for why it's still important is because reading these texts, you get a better sense of like what Marx meant than some dingbat online telling you what he meant and it's it's true that the jargon and, and the way Wait, that it's i thought marx would want us to vote for joe biden <laughs> right or uh defend jiping against all uh imperialist <laughs> aggression uh yeah no you have to read it because at the heart of it again it's not an economics te textbook it is a critique of political economy it's a critique of the categories of political economy themselves an imminent critique and so ultimately there, we have to get out of this sort of shallow, exoteric reading of Marx down to the very important esoteric reading that exists there in that, where it's not simply a critique of inequality, but it's ultimately a critique of the entire way that society is organized. And I'm glad you're on that path. It's a path that I was fortunate to go on at a certain point. And as you continue to go through the book, we can kind of, I guess, do like updates. You can, oh, you yeah. know, we can bring people along on your journey and maybe, maybe they'll join. Maybe I'll do a little Twitch stream. Sure, sure. Some of my comrades from the reading group. Sure. Um, yeah, I think it's really important for people to read Marx and understand it um, because it's one thing to make the moral and ethical case for why we have to end capitalism. And I think that that case has power on its own. I think that's really fucking important. Not everyone's going to read Marx, but, you know, a lot of most people can understand the injustice inherent in the system. Um, but when you read Marx, you realize it is also, it's not only an ethical necessity, it is a scientific <laughs> material yeah. necessity as denuded of all moral or ethical content why we have to end capitalism and transition to communism it, before it, it destroys the whole world. It's like the famous uh, communist philosopher uh, Walter White said, no half measures. Yeah, and I think ultimately... One of the lessons of that you should take from spending all this time reading theory is that uh, I don't know it's it's more in it's more important to be a communist than it is a Marxist. Like I don't think theory can get you everywhere, and I think that like most people aren't going to be actual dorks about it. Like that person said, some of us are fucking theory nerds. Like I would be studying this shit even if I didn't think the world could change because it's a compelling way to understand the world. And I just want to do that anyways, understand history in the present. Right. But ultimately communists aren't even going to make communism. Right. So <laughs> communists, uh, communism isn't going to be made by Marxists and communists aren't going to be the ones that ultimately produce communism. But in the meantime, it's something I think that's very good on an individual and a collective level for us to get our heads around the way that, you know, these things operate. Word. Um, and you know what? Theory is not just for people in their ivory towers either. No. Like working, quote unquote, normal working <laughs> class people have been reading and using Marxist theory for over a hundred years. Like as soon as Capital was published, it was already, it was considered like the Bible of the working class. It spread around, people used it. Um, 
I'm trying and like that was actually even surprising to me because I'm like so beaten down by the idea that like nobody likes us and nobody cares and like normal people don't give a fuck about leftism. That's not true. Um, And I remember it just it just takes organizing. Like I remember reading um, was it Angela Davis, someone associated with the Black Panthers um, talking about the political education that they would do. And a lot of people didn't even have uh, very good reading skills at the time who were in these classes, but they would pour over these texts and try so hard to read and understand like uh, what is to be done by Lenin or um, some texts by Marx and they would come away with a such a good understanding of it and it, it's a really powerful tool in, in in a worker's arsenal that you really you can't ignore I think actually yeah. it is a little bit elitist in and of itself to think that working class people can't read theory right. and understand it because 100%. Um, guess what Working class people are smart. They're just as smart as ivory tower dorks, if not smarter. So, <laughs> so bring theory to the shanty. Yeah, exactly. Now, I would, uh, yeah, I, w- I would agree with that. And I think what people, what that dumb Harvard Law idiot was referring to is something that's real, which has been for the last 40 years or so a historic split between the working class broadly conceived and the socialist, communist, anarchist movements. But that split happened not because workers rejected these things out of hand. In fact, as you said, they, there, was, there was huge hundreds of millions of people in these movements up until the 1970s and 80s. It was that Capital One, and they defeated us, and they defeated the working class, and they were the ones that forced this separation between the theory of working class liberation and the working mm-hmm. class itself. So we don't just go and reify that and say, like, oh, well, you know, workers will never, they'll never be interested in theory or communism or practice ever again. No, we recognize that we were defeated, and we need to get undefeated, and we need to start to win, which means to meld together theory and practice again, practice. weld together <laughs> communism and the working class movement, the struggles that already exist today, that is our goal. And to sit here and be like, oh, well, it's impossible because it's not happening right now on a grand scale is self-defeating. And honestly, it's a tool that our enemies use against us to make us think that it's never possible. Deadass. We have so many enemies this episode. So many. <laughs> always, always. Um, well, you know what they say, if you ain't got no haters, you ain't popping. Um, That's it. <laughs> This is not all to say that we cannot talk about uh, splits, fractures that exist within the proletariat. Sure, sure. Right? Because there are many fractures along lines of culture, race. Nationality. uh, Yeah, are you college educated? Are you not? We can talk about that. But Um, those are splits themselves that are caused by capital and the division of labor. Again, this is what drives me fucking nuts, is that like the world as we find it isn't one where like we created these splits or we're looking down on people or like we're putting people in boxes a and b that like materially happens day in and day out historically and today and we're the ones the only ones who are saying actually that's a it's a false disunity and a false separation and that ultimately ultimately needs to be collapsed yeah and and honestly like I am probably like, I mean, literally to a lot of these people, I probably symbolize a lot of things they hate about the left, right? What, goths? Like, uh, oh yeah, no, I'm a fucking weirdo. I've got tattoos. I'm a PMC, uh, you know, nobody my in the working parents class has are tattoos. lawyers. I grew up in Connecticut, which is a bad place. I mean, it is a bad place, but, um, you know, and I, I, I've got all these like bougie sensibilities, which is true. But if, I can talk to people 
<laughs> random people off the street who do not share my background. Um, I really feel like this is not an inter- insurmountable divide and people just respond well when you're genuine with them. Right. You know, if I, if I went up to someone like, how do you do fellow blue collar worker <laughs> as a worker and, you know, just like started saying slurs or whatever, if it's, you know, a white guy in a hard hat, I sure. feel like that wouldn't land as well as if I'm like, Hey, um, let's talk about the stuff, the goals we share in common let's talk about the bad shit in the world i'm gonna be genuine with you and people tend to respect that i I don't know i've got a i've got a correction you use the you self-apply the term bougie towards yourself earlier Oh, whoops that is that is out of the lexicon i i propose right that we ditch the french word that was appropriated into english which is bourgeois and we start using the far superior german word for bourgeois which oh, is shit burgerlich i knew about that yeah so i think our goal should be to start calling things burgerlich and call people burgerlichs like that burgerlich motherfucker in the bmw cut me off on the way to work today i think burgerlich is a much more appropriate term to use when we want to call people bougie so call yourself burgerlich right. if you'd like burgerlich yeah i'm so I'm I'm so burger-like, um, which is funny because I don't even eat meat. Um, but no, what I was going to say was I feel like even some of this can get cut out because I'm just repeating myself. I'm so bad at my job. Yeah, that's the um, job for the editor. But yeah, so what I was going to say was uh, we can talk about splits within the proletariat that are cultural, as we have been doing. But I think if any split is worth talking about the most, it is the material split. And there is a real material split, I think, between people who stand to inherit a sum of property and people who don't. Right. So um, I think that's becoming a a more and more clear split, uh, certainly since 2008, but even more so now with you're seeing the sort of underground churning changes in class composition and um, like historical material geography Mm -hmm. that are existing in the built environment across the country. And I wonder how that will affect or how that already has affected the politics of the organized left, because it is true. A lot of thought leaders um, like me. Uh, yeah, sure. I mean, I, I wasn't going to include myself in that. Thought leaders of the shanty. But like, it is true. A lot of thought leaders on like the, uh, God, how do I, how do I Blue say this? check marks. How do I say this without saying the J word? Um, <laughs> oh no. The, like the Bernie Kret left, shall wow, we say? Wow, you just triple parentheses the Bernie Kret left. Oh my is God, no. Yeah, Jacobin is the new triple parenthesis. Oh, okay. That's the J word you're talking <laughs> the about. The echoes are echoes of uh, social democracy. I see. There's, there's suck dem. They're not echoes. They're suck dem lines. Okay, so you're anyway, not saying the Jews control I, leftist media. Yeah, no. Um, okay. I do think there's something to be said for the fact that perhaps some people's hostility to anything to the left of social democracy or quote unquote democratic socialism has to do with their class background and the property perhaps that they stand to inherit. Maybe, you know, not everyone can be a cool class trader like me, Um, but you know, maybe I'm wrong. Um, But I think it's an interesting question in reference to what are you going to say? No, I was going to say, sorry, go on. I was going to ask you to put some, uh, flesh on this on these theoretical bones here when you talk about this split what do you actually mean irl um okay so here's an article in the guardian uh our favorite burger lick newspaper yeah it's it's in the opinion section for some reason 
uh, but it just seems like a fact. Um, inheritance, comma, not work, has become the main route to middle class home ownership. There you go. Uh, subhead, the cost of housing is rising so much faster than wages that buyers increasingly rely on family wealth. So once again, um, this is basically a return to the norm. Yeah. Because... The pre-post-war norm. With the exception of, you know, the long exception... 1945 to 1975 or thereabouts, yeah. that is the only way that people were able to have property. In like capitalist society, certainly. I mean, hopefully we don't go back to feudal society where you get property with a sword, but maybe yeah. we will. Who knows? And like, I feel like even the headline kind of gets it backwards because when it says inheritance is the route to middle-class home ownership, no, like actually... Home ownership is the route to the middle class. Yeah, right? it's a dialectic. Yeah. So Well, that's traditionally in the United States what the middle class has meant. Yeah. Know? That's part yeah, of the like, imaginary. Like it's sort of this weird um intermediary class where you are a wage worker, but you are able to, you know, via a number of government interventions for the most part, um, and you know, extension of credit which is going away somewhat. Um, yeah, you're enter a thing called the middle class by having property. Yeah, and, and, and more specifically, having this one big asset that you've attained that in some ways insulates you, not just from like the larger economy, right, owning a house, but also ties you into the larger economy because as asset prices rise, as houses have historically become you know, more and more valuable, you actually have a material stake in the larger economy, not just real estate, but presumably, you know, the stock market and all that. Yeah, like it shit. was an explicit anti-communist plot, right? The suburbs, I mean, Levittown. Yeah. Wasn't it the Levitt guy who said no guy who owns a house can be a communist? <laughs> he, he said something like that. And I think that there is, there was a, an aspect of the mo of the forward thinking burger licks who understood that this would be good <laughs> for tamping down on the class struggle. But I think that more so they're reacting to what was i think an imminent tendency within capital in the 20th century to to kind of broaden the sphere of commodity society and to and 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 actually it assert itself over space in the united states and like commodify land in such a way that this broad pros prosperity existed because it was uh profitable right like you had this this huge swath of it's almost like primitive accumulation of all this land across the country that then could be carved up and sold at you know value for more money at profit uh to like tens of millions of workers it's just that of course you're dealing with something that's ultimately scarce which is like space and eventually you're going to run into the situation where you can't just carve up land anymore it's going to run out as like an extensive policy yeah i mean it already has in that it has for a while uh, you know most millennials will never own anything however i feel like this inheritance thing could be a little bit of a sleeping giant yeah and and i want to i want to get your take on how that's going to impact our political economy specifically in reference to you know the politics of millennials who are for the most part um pretty pretty broke right yeah. now if you yeah. look at the charts and graphs cuz like a certain fraction of millennials are going to inherit a bunch of shit maybe in their 60s when their boomer parents die and maybe maybe sooner than that maybe so like i i have a few thoughts on this all right shoot um so okay um 
Because it seems like it's possible that just even knowing that you're going to get this property or maybe actually getting it when you're older um, might have an impact on the ideology and on the politics and on the behavior of these at this fraction of the class. I would go further, if I may, and say that it has a material effect on the individuals who presumably are going to inherit like a half million dollars worth of house, or let's just say like gain an, an estate and inheritance anyway at some point in time, which it takes a lot of the pressure of the day-to-day -day off of you to know that, okay, maybe your, your folks aren't going to die for a while, but if something were to happen, they could probably take a second mortgage out or they could probably lend you twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars $40,000, God forbid. It's like this little security blanket that exists, even without ideology. But then, of yeah. course, it becomes part of the ideology and part of the politics. Yeah. So a few, a few thoughts on I this. wouldn't know. I'm just guessing. <laughs> Um, I mean, like I can think about it in myself too, because I, you know, I've got boomer parents who own property, not to like tell on myself or anything. And <laughs> or call your parents out on the podcast. Um, yeah. And I wonder like, is this having an effect on my politics? I don't think so. Uh, well, I you are feel communist. very committed to <laughs> communism and you know, when the revolution comes, uh, my dad's not, not getting expropriated, <laughs> but, um, no, everyone will be nice to him though. I, I mean, he's a nice guy. He's a nice guy. Um, we'll do it really nicely. Yeah. So, but like, okay. Abstracting it away from me. Um, first of all, uh, I kind of question whether that wealth is going to be smoothly passed down through the generations because we're talking in the long term, yeah. right? Um, we're not just talking from one generation to the next. Um, most people have more than one kid, so it can dissipate that way. Um, a lot of it's going to get eaten up by end-of-life care, yes. assuming that we do not have a good um, single-payer health care uh, or even National and Health as, Service. As Social Security kind of degrades as a, as a retirement means mm -hmm. for people. Uh, a lot of boomers are just like living it up, <laughs> spending oh. extravagantly are they before ever? they go. Look at all those Trump boat rallies, right? The beautiful boaters. They uh -huh. are living it uh -huh. up, man. And like most people's uh, wealth is not just in the bank, right? It's in investments. And we are going through a financial crisis right now. And I think a lot of it is going to get eaten up by that. So right there, I question whether this is going to be a static thing or whether this wealth uh, is just going to go away. I, um, I think you're seeing right now in this crisis, well, you're seeing different things happening. There's like a divergence. So there's like some percentage of people who already own houses in areas like Long Island, for example. I know people who are trying to buy out there or New Jersey where housing prices are actually going up right now in a big way because everyone's trying to flee the cities. You know, they're trying to get out. So houses are really scarce and more and more expensive. Those people are maybe going to make a huge nut off of this and be in good shape. But there's others, the ones who actually lost their jobs and are losing their homes, these boomers, in other suburbs or in more urban-type areas or ex-urban-type areas where there's not really many jobs anymore, they're going to have to sell their houses prematurely, right, in order to actually, like, go and rent and live for the next... 10, 15, 20 years of their lives. And if you see who, by and large, is buying up all this housing stock and all of this rental stock, too, 
It's large real estate investment trust corporations. It's big capital. It's Sorry, coming millennials. In. Yeah, that's <laughs> you're not in that millennials. Like maybe you have a small tranche of that shit, yeah. but you are not a REIT, okay? So, like, so that that might that might uh, be expropriated by the market from you before you can mm-hmm. inherit it. So like yeah, I think the number of millennials whose families are rich enough for this wealth to carry over in a substantial way from even one generation to the next is actually pretty small. It exists, but um, yeah. Like if we're just if we're talking about like the middle class writ large, it's big. But if we're talking about, you know, the ones who are rich enough for this for these these phenomena we're talking about not to matter, maybe not so much. Um but it is fun to think about what would happen if a bunch of millennials say they've been say their parents don't give them a lot of money and they've just been broke their whole lives, just like suddenly become property owners in their 60s. <laughs> you know, like, will they suddenly have test tube babies because they realize they can finally afford to procreate? <laughs> uh, are they going to throw like hundred thousand dollar avocado toast parties? <laughs> like what's going to happen? It's all it's going to be like uh, I just re- watch breaking bad it's gonna be like uh when jesse was really bummed after they killed all those people and took a break from <laughs> cooking meth but he had like millions of dollars so he just threw these insane dubstep, bender. dubstep benders for like weeks and months at a time just throwing money at people and just huge dance parties with various types of fucked up people that's what millennials i think will do in a lot of cases yeah maybe maybe i don't um, know i but, mean i don't know i thought we were like you know wusses and we were too maybe the zoomers would go on a dubstep bender or whatever <laughs> they listen to they go on like a 100 gex bender <laughs> but we would just like buy a lot of really nice blankets and pillows and invite our friends over for a tea party with our <laughs> stuffed animals or something I, I think one element <clears throat> is missing though from this from this thought experiment like what's going to happen and it's that um it's not just that millennials typically aren't able to buy homes these days it's that the kind of jobs that they can get with their education or even just out of high school now are way worse than old economy steve right and so even before i think the boomers die off which is like a process that's going to go on for another 20 30 years or whatever in the case of my parents hopefully longer but who knows um where i think there's already a subsidy right now. Think about all the people you know who live in New York City, and I know you know a lot whose parents help pay part of their fucking rent, right? It's like it's a, what it, what that is is a transfer from the boomers to the millennials before they even die in order to subsidize people whose jobs aren't paying enough for them to actually survive otherwise. And there's no indication that those jobs are going to get much better because most of them are dead end, like whatever, like coding jobs or like graphic designer or truck driver or whatever it is that they've ended up in. So already I think there's this siphoning off and it's keeping millennials higher than they probably would be otherwise Mm -hmm. at the same time as this inherited wealth from past generations is being like, used materially to keep them alive but like isn't going to pass to them you know what i mean it doesn't seem terribly sustainable it's not sustainable and that's you know the ones that even have the option you know obviously there are tons and tons of people in our generation who are just lumpen millennials who don't have uh middle class parents to help them out and they are in a much worse situation um but i wonder like even if a fraction of this generation manages to inherit some kind of vestigial wealth. A fraction will. They'll be called the new ruling class. Yeah. (laughs) No word. We'll Um, still have a ruling class. Like what... What's going to happen? What's going to be the effect on their politics and on their ideology? And how are they going to wield that power? Because 
I know by reading Assad Hater, the ideology is not simply a function of your material interests, sure. right? There are so many different things that go into shaping that ideology and, over the course of your life. And I wonder, I hope, I mean, maybe this is a dumb hope, but I hope even if some millennials who have been leftists their whole lives manage to inherit some modicum of uh, comfort, I I'm just hoping that they keep it real if they've been, you know, acculturated yeah. for, you know, 50 years of their life to having solidarity with other <laughs> other people who are, you know, struggling. Yeah, no, I mean, it's a, it's an open question. I'm not sure. I mean, I think the question of what it does ideologically and politically is a really interesting one because it's a fact like we're seeing this process happen right now i think that you know there'll be various different ways that different people deal with it different circumstances that people are in but something important has to happen when all of a sudden that dream right the dream of the 1940s to the 1970s is no longer operable in people's lives by and large and they end up you know renting from a real estate investment trust in australia uh, instead of ever imagining being able to buy a home right now that has to have some effect and i think that that's the terrain that we are all entering in right now whatever age you are right is a terrain for the next few decades of of a shift not just in housing, but also a shift in class composition so that there's going to be so many more, for better or for worse, people out there who are feeling the direct effects of this ongoing crisis of capital and are going to see solutions away from that, whether it's democratic socialism, whether it's Trumpism, whether it's Tom Cottonism, whether it's communism, whether it's anarchism or whatever, they're going to see solutions less and less in an abstract way and more and more tied materially to their lives. And I think that that's, that's again, the thing that, that, that crisis does. You know, we don't want crises in people's lives. We don't want society to suffer social crises when all of a sudden, you know, the money disappears and there's job losses and people lose their homes. That's not what we want, but we know that that is going to happen because it always happens. You know, the line goes up and then line goes down. So, like, it's particularly, I think, for a lot of reasons, fruitful territory for us who want to, to change the world, for us communists, over the next 20, 30 years. It's not just that things are bad. You know, things are bad and have been bad all, all over the world through the course of human history. It's that gap between what our expectations are, what we know is possible in this world, and our lived reality that is, that is key. Right. Because people have to, like, understand the context of their immiseration, not merely <clears throat> just like automatically become communist once they, they lose. Something. You know what I mean? Yeah. And because we've seen how it's been different in the last couple of generations. And now people are like, well, why isn't this for me? You know? Yeah. But like, yeah, I think that's a really important point that people do not automatically make the connection between their material interests or the conditions in which they find themselves and, you know, the type of politics that would help them to improve their situation. And that's why organizing is so important. And that's why, like, 
Yeah, everything's going to shit. That's so. That's why I'm not an accelerationist. No, there's right? no need. Like, we don't have to. Be. Uh, <laughs> home ownership has been yanked away from a large swath of people as something that's just never going to be possible for them. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to rise up and no. revolt. You know, like uh, I think that's kind of some like communizer people are a little too uh, deterministic with it when they think oh yeah this is automatically gonna happen there's gonna be a riot that turns into communism right. like, like no organizing necessary i think that just is not borne out by anything in reality and if we don't organize and if we don't build a base and if we don't build like durable institutions to carry people over from one struggle to the next whether you want to call that a party or a party of parties or whatever um it's it's not gonna happen like things are just going to get worse and worse and we're going to have a fucking civilizational collapse and the evil, you know, the small ruling class fraction of millennials will rule over all the other ones and keep all the avocado toast for themselves. And even the Zoomers, too. Everybody puts all our hope in the Zoomers, but there's going to be some sicko Zoomer oh, yeah. bourgeoisie, you know, some sick ass burger lick Zoomers in like 20, 30, 40 years lording it over us in oh, fucking God. camps and shit. Yeah, it, it reminds me of that um, article that someone posted in my thread, actually, about how the rich, the ruling class are very much convinced that this kind of exterminist future is coming. Oh, yeah. They I was just, just reading an article about it yesterday. Yeah, like they don't think there's anything they can do about it. And the only things that they want to know, the only things they're interested in are like, how do I get off of this planet? Right. How do I transcend, <clears throat> you know, my human body? How? And how do I keep authority over my private security force? Say, how do I keep my pro my Pinkerton security force from killing me and my family and taking yeah, all like of this our guy, shit? Like this That's guy literally what this, they're thinking. Yeah, this guy who wrote this article is a professor and he like got paid a ton of fucking money to go speak to like five billionaires. And he was like, well... If you if you don't want your Pinkertons to kill you and your family, um, you should treat them well. But like <laughs> the first step, you know, to, is to like make this kind of collapse less likely. Sure. Maybe yeah. like have better redistributive policies. As a wise man said, understand that we live in a society. Yeah, yada yada, and you know you actually do have a lot of power to affect the outcome. Maybe do better environmental policies, and they just like laughed in his yeah, face, they like don't. they didn't believe him. Now maybe they didn't want to believe him. Maybe they had, you know, some motivation there, but like that's crazy to me to think that people with the most power in the world they would think, think that, that they, yeah. they just have no ability whatsoever to affect the outcome, let alone, you know, obligation. Well, they're I think that they're they're caught in their own contradiction, which is that maybe they don't even know this, but the reality is that like their power, their class power has to be destroyed if humanity is gonna make it. You know, we're we're not gonna be able to go to Elysium. You know, we're not going to be able to, like, create some sort of bunker society in the long term. And the only way uh, through it is, like, through it, you know? And, and their power has to be destroyed for that. There's no way that we yeah. can reason with the billionaires. There's no way that we can uh, ask nicely for them to, like, give us a little gruel when we're all working in the salt mines, you know, in 40, 50 years. I'll be too old to work in the salt mines. I won't be doing it. I'll be working on, like, what you think. a desk job at the salt mines. <laughs> Oh, I'll be the foreman of the salt miners <laughs> <laughs> with my tools off, just being like oh, a little to the left, a little to the right, you know, like it's it's even a depressing future for them, though. Like, that's the thing that really yeah, gets they me. See, they, if, if that is your power and that's your life and you have to retain that 
but there's the only way that humanity can be any better is if you give up some of that power. Of course, you're going to be blackpilled because they don't want to give up their own power. You know, yeah. like the one solution is the one that they can't abide by, and they have the resources to prepare for that now. Uh, we just need our own resources to prepare to take their power away from them. I feel like we need one. Like, how much would it help our cause if there was one billionaire who was like... I know what you're thinking. You're thinking Elon Musk. Actually, but. I'm on your side. I'm going to fund the revolution. I mean, it happens in uh, in Kim Stanley Robinson. Yeah. No, no spoilers. Yeah. But uh, I don't know. It's probably not going to happen, the though. The closest shot we had was Elon Musk, who uh, has at least like read the front cover of uh, Capital. But I, I think he's a little bit too far gone at no, this well, point. Well, we were mean to him online, so now he's not going to help us. Cyberbullying doesn't work. That's what you get. So how do we get out of this? Uh, we're 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 in a pretty tight spot right now. I would tight say um, both uh, in terms of what's going on in the world, in terms of how we finish out this podcast. <laughs> like what what where do we go from here? Uh, I feel like um, that we've we've potentially now started to rethink our. Um, our, our activism that we're stuck in. Uh, I think maybe the judicious thing for us to do is maybe not even propose anything, but uh, maybe all of us can, we can go think about the best solution for this and then maybe come back to it. I don't know. I don't feel like I have adequate that is solutions. such a left-com thing for you to say right yeah, now. Yeah, I know. I'm feeling based and left-com sitting. He's literally sitting in an armchair, folks. <laughs> Well, you know, like, uh, I, as I've argued, we have to go beyond left communism, but uh, maybe I'm not there yet. Well, I think we should be getting a little prescriptive. I think we should have more, like, it'd be like, like safety pin box for communists, you know? Sure. Like, I like to end on a call to action, and I really was inspired by talking to angry workers. Oh, because God, Because yeah. what they are doing is a way to connect up your current day praxis with a communist horizon in a way that I think is very clear and inspiring and missing a lot of the time these days. Uh, if, if, if you're talking about that, then, then yeah, hundred percent, that's what people should do. This kind of, this bridge between theory and practice, I think is like the sort of things that we need to not just think about, but start doing. Like I would love more, nothing more than to hear that like Antifada listeners in different towns and cities across the United States and around the world started to meet up with people locally and started to put together the sort of infrastructure that we need not just to like root ourselves in the class, in the workplace and in towns, but uh, also start to be able to connect those together, communicate struggles together and kind of cohere the, the true material struggles that are already happening and eventually start networking between those groups and turn into something sort of the the embryo the nucleus mm -hmm. of a, a new form of class power if that's what you're talking about then i think we can uh, we can get a little prescriptive on that yeah i i'm comfortable doing that um i i think people should just fucking get involved however they can you know um covid's back like it sucks we were going to talk about this but just real quick like Dude, 185,000 cases yesterday and 166,000 today. Like, I know that there wasn't a dip in the wave. I don't even know, like, if you can call this a wave at this point. But, like, shit's getting bad again. And 
you you should be doing this like for the struggle or whatever but like also we're all going to need some shit to concentrate on coming up because looks like we're going back into some march april type lockdown shit Mm -hmm. (laughs) so maybe the first forays into kind of creating this angry workers type Mm -hmm. structure will be by zoom but like that's better than not taking care of yourself because i think that people are really we're really going to need each other we're really going to need to i hate to say it but do self-care because the next four or five months this winter is going to be filled with a lot of fucking discontent yeah it's going to be a long long fucking winter long fucking winter i i do think that there will be some openings for uh especially essential workers people working in these sectors that have to keep going to really organize and to build power and even just the category of essential worker yeah. we've talked about on the show before it was an like people realize now the average person realizes that these jobs are not disposable and i really don't think that there is any going back from that of course we need more than consciousness we need you know organizing we need power but i do think that public opinion has shifted somewhat and I do think that people are more conscious of themselves and of each other as workers in the world hopefully so you know if you're working in an essential job essential sector it seems like a good chance to really see how far you can push it um yeah and and remember the the first sort of like foray into this that uh our comrades over in England did was simply like taking jobs like new jobs or jobs that they already had and simply like analyzing the the sort of things that were already happening on the ground and then they started so it's a great time if you're working in logistics or trucking or retail or whatever to start like watching the way that power works in the in the workplace and starting to document that for yourself and for people that you know and eventually again like our theory of what has to happen comes out of that practice that's already in existence. If we're doing that, then something as simple as like watching the way that the manager, you know, dominates workers at work and the ways that they respond to it and potentially fight back against it, that in itself is practice. That in itself is not just practice, but also the creation of theory eventually. Yeah. And that's the kind of shit that we need to do like immediately. Yeah. And we also need to be paying attention to supply chains and where the food comes from because one thing that they said in the book that really uh stuck with me was one reason why workers put up with capitalism is they think that it is too complicated for them to run shit on their own and this is something the bosses have done on purpose in many cases to try to uh confuse people or make them think that they need some kind of centralized authority to tell them what to do because they don't know where their supplies are coming or from or just in the, the market right it's it's one of these fictive aspects of the market this fetishization of like the market as though like production for exchange is the only way that things could ever get made when of course like our listeners and the working class across the country and the world are remaking the world every single day with their own actions and that's ultimately our power our power not comes you know not because we're the most degraded although we are (laughs) in class society our power comes because we have the ability to make it stop because we do it day in and day out that is ultimately our power and so focusing on that i think is a good way forward yeah And to the degree that, I mean, we have a longer conversation to have about this. We won't have today. But to the degree that uh, electoral politics are still a factor in any of this, it is insofar as they can help us build a base 
a mass energized, politicized working class base for these kinds of politics. And, you know, maybe make some kind of non-reformers reforms that help us be in a better position to fight. And I'm thinking right now about all of the socialist city council candidates who are going to be working on the defund campaign. That is a kind of electoralism that I can get behind. Deadass. So shall we... uh, Let's sign off. Shall we sign off? Folks, we're going to put, again, the information for the Atlanta uh, Solidarity Fund in. If you're interested in communicating with Dick... um, the political support people have put together an email address. Uh, you can send an email to write to dick at protonmail.com and they will print out your letter. It could be about anything. It could be saying hi, or it could be, if you want to, stuff about political economy and history questions, you know, the ones that Dick is so good at answering. Uh, those will be sent to him, and he has paper now, and oh. he has a pen, so he can write back to you. And I think that that would really help to uh to to kind of allay some of the isolation that he and the others feel right now so if you want to do that again it's right to dick at protonmail.com and it's atlsolidarity.org in order to contribute to his legal and political support word thank you everybody Second class fools, Mr. Backlash. I'm gonna leave you with the blues, yes I am. When I try to find a job to earn a little cash, all you got to offer is your mean old white backlash. But the world is Like me, or black, yellow, beige, and brown, Mr. Backlash. I'm gonna leave you with the blues, yes, I am.